All right, here's something very cool. Usain Bolt's world record 100-meter dash time, 9.58 seconds. Uh, he reaches speeds of almost 27 miles an hour, just blazing, blazing fast, right? Incredible. He still hasn't been broken. 9.58 seconds. And yet, he would lose a race to a two-inch uh, southern dart butterfly. <laughs> he would also lose a race to a 200-pound African warthog. Very attractive animal. Uh, and, yeah, I came across this with an Olympic infographic a few years back. You know, animals are awesome type of thing. Michael Phelps, he can swim almost five miles an hour, but he's no match for a gray whale, even though it weighs 40 tons, and yet it can pass him in a 15-meter freestyle. While the fastest fish on Earth, the sailfish, can complete three laps of a pool in the time it takes for Michael Phelps to finish one. Animals, they are awesome. They, and that's one of the reasons why we developed such a close attachment to them. It's one of the reasons why we lose uh, an animal like we did with our Labrador a few weeks ago. It's just like one of the deepest griefs that you can experience in life. Uh, animals are awesome. The Gen Z, our cultural moment right now, Gen Z, they, they, like 80% of Gen Z says that we'd rather have a dog or a cat than a child, <laughs> which has led some people to say that we're not in a baby boom anymore, we're in a fur boom. <laughs> fur boom, okay. <laughs> but in all seriousness, what happens? What happens when a society cares for and treats its animals better than it treats its humans? What happens when a culture shows more mercy, compassion, and care to its golden retrievers? than it does its poor, its disabled, and its displaced. Something like that was occurring uh, in Jesus' day. You know, you may say, well, that's our world today. We treat our animals better than people, but there's nothing new under the sun. That's exactly what's going on in Luke chapter 13. When Jesus was preaching in a synagogue, similar to what you were talking about, John, uh, on a Sabbath day, and he comes upon a woman who is suffering what seems to be, what appears to be an extreme form of scoliosis. It says that she's bent over. She's almost bent in half. You can imagine almost a 90 degree angle in her back. I mean, she may be the Bible's only hunchback, the hunchback of, of the synagogue. And listen to what happens. Uh, on a Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues. And a woman was there who had been crippled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus, um, when he, he saw her, he called her forward and said to her, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. But he puts his hands on her and immediately she straightened up and praised God. Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, the synagogue leader said to the people, There are six days for work, so come Come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. The Lord answered him, You hypocrites, doesn't each one of you on the Sabbath untie your ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? Then why should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years, why shouldn't she be free on the Sabbath day from what has bound her? When he said this, all his opponents were humiliated. But the people were delighted with all the wonderful things he was doing. 
Luke suggests that this woman's condition was somehow the result of Satan. He speaks of a spirit, of affliction. We don't know exactly how. He doesn't tell us. I mean, maybe, maybe she had been abused, beaten earlier in life and suffered some kind of spinal cord injury that was lingering. Maybe she, maybe she just was verbally abused and it just caused her to shrivel up. But for whatever reason, this woman, for 18 years, had not run, had not danced, had not jumped, had to cock her head to the side in order to see straight. Because that's, I mean, her body's bent. I mean, to look straight, she has to do this. And so that's and to say nothing about the chronic pain that she must have experienced with the body so misshapen and with the forces of gravity always working against her. So Jesus is preaching. I mean, maybe he's in a room like this. He's up front. And he notices her. And he sees her. And he calls her forward. He speaks to her. She doesn't speak to him. He's, he says, come here. He calls her forward. Can you imagine like this hobbled woman? I mean, like this. Making her way up the center aisle of the synagogue. Into the presence of Jesus. Woman, you are free. And he lays them in his hands on her. I don't know if he touched her head or her shoulders or her back, but can you picture it? Can you picture it? Because this is what happened. A human being, the crooked made straight. But the synagogue official who's there, he, he all he can see is a transgression of the Sabbath. All you can see is a Sabbath breaker. It says, don't come here to be healed on the Sabbath day. You've got six other days to do that. To which Jesus replies, hypocrites care for their donkeys more than their humans. So I want to show you three simple things about this king. Simple truths about this king. Number one, the king, this king brings rest for the burdened. Hope for the afflicted and a wake-up call for his church. Hope for the burdened, I mean, rest for the burdened, hope for the afflicted, a wake-up call for us. First, the rest for the burdened comes in the form of Shabbat, of Sabbath. It may may seem like, if you're reading through the Gospels, that Jesus is anti-Sabbath, because he's always getting into fights with the religious authorities over the topic. They're saying one thing, he's saying another thing. He's not, though, actually anti-Sabbath. He's just anti all the man-made restrictions that you're talking about, John, that they foisted upon the Sabbath. I'll give you an example of this. Let's suppose that you are the proud parents of two rambunctious young boys, and you uh, buy a new house with a big, green, grassy backyard and a full-scale jungle gym in the back. The only problem with the house is a new house is it backs up to a road that's very busy, like a tremendously dangerous and busy intersection it is right behind your house. And so you made sure the builders, when they were putting in the fence, made the fence you know, especially tall and, and covered the, the whole backside of the property. And you tell your boys, well, guys, grass, yours. Jungle gym, yours. Play anywhere you want. Just, you know, don't, don't go after the fence. Well, what's a boy to do? A few days later, mom looks out the window. What are the boys doing? You know, they're, they're 
sees them surveying the fence. One of them is even you know, starting to put his hands on the fence. He's thinking about scaling the fence. So she goes to her husband and says, Honey, this is terrible. The boys, I'm afraid, are going to go over the fence. Um, the road is really busy and dangerous. What, what can we do? After a little bit of discussion, you decide, well, we will build another fence. A fence inside the fence. <laughs> One that's a little bit taller and a little bit further in. And that way, we'll have double protection. It's a great idea. So you build um, your fence inside the fence. What happens to your green grassy backyard? It gets a little bit smaller. A few weeks go by. The boys are outside playing. Oh no, what's happening? They're climbing the fence again. Just what I feared. What are we going to do this time? Well, let's just build a third fence. But this time we'll put a muddy moat around the bottom of the fence, and that'll make it that much more difficult to climb because they'll be in the mud. They won't be able to, you know, latch onto the fence at all. And you know, before long, what happens? That nice green grassy backyard with the jungle gym is is no longer a playground. It's a fence within a fence within a fence. And what do we call that, Anne? A prison. You worked in, in those for a bunch of years. It's a prison. And that's what was happening. See, the religious authorities were so worried that people would transgress the Sabbath that they, well, they said, they said these things. Like, you can walk for 3,000 feet on a Sabbath day, but if you go 3,001 feet, then you've done work and you've broken the Sabbath. But if you actually take some food supplies from your house and station them 2,500 feet from your house, then really all you're doing is, is moving within your house because you're in your house and you go to your food supplies, which is considered, somehow, it's considered another, another house. And so you can go uh, 3,000 feet past that, that the station of the food supplies because you're just walking from your house then. But if you go 3,001 feet, then you will have done work. They said you can't cook on, on the Sabbath. You can only cook on Friday. You, you can only lift 10 pounds, or 5 pounds rather. If you lift 10 pounds, you're doing work. And on and on, the restrictions went. God, God wants this day to be a blessing to you. Like, he blessed the seventh day and made it holy. It's supposed to be the best day of the week. A day of rest for the burdened. A day of liberation for the slaves. It is the day of the week that even donkeys and oxes get off. Like all of Israel got the day off. But those who were in power were stealing the joy of the day by making fences within fences. And so I, I, I was thinking about what about us today? Like what is our relationship to this, to the Sabbath? And, and ours is probably quite different, Right. Because the prison we live in is not a prison of tons and tons of rules. It's the prison of our, our cultural moment, which is go, 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 do, 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 24-7. Every day is the same. We, the prison is, is a prison of, we, we refuse to go out into the grass, grassy backyard and into the jungle gym. And to enjoy. We rarely distance ourselves from our own activities long enough to stop and see what God is doing or to stop and listen to what God is saying. Like this whole idea of uncluttered time and space is a luxury we don't have 
Because it's a luxury that we don't receive. I love this quote. A world without a Sabbath is like a man without a smile, like a summer without flowers, and like a home without a garden. Just as you said, God's purpose on the Sabbath was to restore people on this day. When Jesus heals this woman, it demonstrates God's purpose for the day. It's to take the crooked and make it straight. It's to take the rough places and make them plain. It's to take the the wavy and, and to chart a path, to chart a path towards healing. But it turns out to be an untapped resource. It's an untapped blessing for many. I mean, it's a shame because we all feel like we're stretched too thin. We all feel anxious about all the troubles in our lives. We all feel like we don't have enough time. We don't have enough time for the things that matter. We all feel like our relationship with God isn't exactly what we want it to be. And for the most part, we all ignore this gift of gifts, which is Shabbat. God's, the King's gift to the burden. And He wants you, friends, He wants you to rest in order to be renewed. He wants you to adopt a new rhythm, which is not 24-7, but it's 24-6. And my hope, uh, uh, maybe one of the major advantages of having a worship service at 4 o'clock on Sunday afternoons, I know there are disadvantages, but one of the advantages is, I mean, maybe it means you can sleep in. And maybe it means you can, if you're an early riser like me, you get up and you go for a hike, like I did last Sunday. And you get, just take it easy in the day. And allow God to refresh you. And my challenge to you, if if I'm speaking a word that's convicting to anybody here, is do this. Whatever is work for you, whatever is work for you, by faith, don't do that for 24 hours. And see what happens. Number two. The king brings hope for the afflicted. And... To me, this is a passage that brings tremendous encouragement to people who uh, suffer chronic pain. Because that was this woman. She had to be in tremendous chronic pain. Um, People who suffer from chronic illness. People people maybe who suffer with special needs. One of the things I love about Jesus' ministry of healing in the Bible is the Bible goes out of its way to show us that Jesus takes notice of people who suffered for a long period of time. I don't know if you ever caught this before. John 9. It says he heals a man who has been blind since birth. Matthew 9, he heals a woman who has been bleeding for 12 years. Luke 8, he frees a demon-possessed man who had worn no clothes for a long time. John 5, he heals a man who had been an invalid for, for 38 years. And here he heals a woman who had been crooked for 18. And now this woman's condition was obvious. It was obvious and plain to the naked eye. But what about those who suffer from um, afflictions that are not obvious to the, to the naked eye, like diabetes and MS and cystic fibrosis and chronic migraines and chronic pain? Um, and what about people who's, who have a child who's born with Downs or a child who's born somewhere on the, on the spectrum? Um, I was reading really powerful illustration of, of, of what it's like to be a parent of a child 
with special needs by another, it was a British pastor, and he was talking to his congregation about, like, this is what we and my wife, what we have to go through with our special needs child. He said, he said, it's almost like, bear with me, you go to a restaurant with a close group of friends, and you have this wonderful meal together, and then at the end, whoever was the host you know, stands up and they, they click their, their glass, and they say, I have, I have a special treat for all of you. They run out of the room. They come back in a few seconds later with a tray with these um, round objects that are, that are beautifully wrapped all together. And he, the host goes around. They start passing out these, this armful of round objects about the size of tennis balls. And everyone starts to open the, this mysteri- mysterious gift to discover that they had been given uh, a chocolate orange. Anybody had a chocolate orange before? Yeah, so 22 uh, delicious segments of milk chocolate. I guess this is, maybe it's a British thing. Is it an American thing? I, I don't know, because I'm not a chocolate I'm a, I'm a pagan that way. I don't like chocolate. But everybody is like, whoa, we got a chocolate orange. And they're starting to unwrap it and look and, and eat it. And, and they're just enjoying the, the, this, the best chocolate in the world. Uh, fine, fine quality. And everyone's chattering and laughing. Well, you go to unwrap your gift. Yours is the same size as theirs. Yours is wrapped in the same paper as theirs. Only it's not a chocolate orange. It is a, an orange. Like an orange orange. Real thing. Not 22 uh, sumptuous slices of milk chocolate, but 11 uneven, seed-filled uh, sections uh, of, of citrus, and one that's um, that's pretty tough to, to peel, like you're there trying to unpeel it with your own hands, and it's squirting in your eyes, and it's squirting all over the table, and you're like, ah! All the while, the rest of the table, none of them notice that you've been given something different. They're busy enjoying their chocolate. And so you try to tell yourself, like, there's nothing wrong with oranges. Oranges are sweet and tangy. They're the undisputed kings of the citrus world. They're filled with vitamin C. In some ways, I actually got the better gift. Because, I, I mean, this cocoa butter and milk and fat, I mean, that's not good for me. Um, any doctor can tell you that an orange, a real orange, is, is better for you. Like, look, looked at from a certain perspective, I have the better dessert. But try as you might to be thankful. Your heart just sings. Because this isn't what you were expecting, and this isn't what everybody else got. And when I read that, I thought, that is, a, that is such a, a powerful metaphor, isn't it? I mean, not only for those who have special needs kids, but for everybody who suffers from a chronic affliction that goes unnoticed, that is. An invisible illness that's not seen by the rest of the watching world. And I think what I wanted to say, and I might be speaking to you. I don't know what what you're going through. But what I wanted to say from this passage and from those passages I had up on the screen. This king notices you. He notices your affliction. Even if the rest of us, we don't see it. We don't understand it. We can't appreciate it. We have no idea what you have to go through on a daily basis. The king does. He notices. He is not indifferent to your suffering. He notices those who suffer for a long, long period of time. 
And I can imagine like, almost how difficult or even frustrating it might be to read healing passages in the Bible and to think, I prayed for that. I asked God for that. I have asked him so many times to, to heal and to change my circumstances. And here I see Jesus healing, and yet, yet he doesn't. I mean, do you know what I'm talking about? My consolation to you is simply this. Every time Jesus heals someone in the Bible, every time he works a miracle of healing, he is saying that this is what things will be like when the world is under my care. Every time he heals, this is what, this is what the world will be like when it's under my care. And I love that way of, of thinking about the king and his kingdom and all of his miracles. Like when he feeds the hungry, it's his way of saying, my world will not be a place where little children have distended bellies and flies on their face. When he touches the leper, he's saying, in my world, there will be no more, no more of this. No more cancer, no more sickle cell anemia, no more autism. When he stills the storm on the Sea of Galilee, in my world, uh, weather will be our friend. (laughs) No more droughts, no more tornadoes, no more floods. This is what I promise you. This is what the world will be like in the days and the ages to come. And I promise you that his healing touch will come upon you one day. I wish that the day is today. I wish that, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've prayed for the gift of healing. Like, come Holy Spirit, come upon me. I would love to be the preacher who could just walk out into the, into the sanctuary and just lay hands and actually heal human beings. I've never seen a healing take place like that. Um, I've read stories of it. I've never seen it. I promise you I've never done it. But I believe that it will come, that one day his healing touch will lay upon all the sons and daughters of Abraham, all the sons and daughters of God. And he will say to you, my child, woman, you are freed from your infirmity. Son, you are freed from your infirmity. You're freed from, from your affliction. You are freed. One of my favorite quotes in all the literature, do you, you know where this is taken from? They said that one. The hands of the king are healing hands, and by them the rightful king shall be made known. Who who wrote that? Anybody? Oh, come on. I know you guys, my family know it. Really? That's in, it's in The Return of the King, in the, the trilogy. Um, when Aragon, he, uh, he takes the leaf and he applies it, I think he applies it to Frodo. The hands of the king are healing hands. And by them, thus shall the rightful king um, be made known. I'll just say one more thing on this. When Satan tempts you or anybody that you know who are suffering under affliction, when he tempts you to despair and tells you how, how awful God is and how unfair God is and how capricious God is and how mean God is, and when he does that, I want you to recognize, like you need to help a friend recognize that all Satan is doing is trying to bind you again. He loves to bind. Not only does he love to bind people physically, he loves to knock them up on their insides to take away their one piece of hope. 
He, he loves for cynicism and anger and frustration to just bind people in that way. He wants to tie you into bitter knots of resentment and turn every one of us into hunchbacks. And when Satan tempts you or a friend, just remind them that Jesus notices every son and daughter of God. And nothing, nothing in this world will go untouched by Jesus. Remember Psalm 126. That one day those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. And also remember that you haven't even gone untouched. That Jesus has already touched our lives in so many ways. All right, the king brings rest for the burden, hope for the afflicted. And then finally, a wake-up call for the church. A few years ago, a newspaper columnist who I enjoy reading, he posted on social media that their longtime family dog, Katie, had died. Um, I think we've got a picture of Katie up here. She had, oh, what was the type of dog she was? Uh, anybody know what that is? I can't even find it in my notes. But he, Katie has died. He gets this just massive outpouring of sympathy on social media and condolences from his readers. Well, the next day, he's supposed to publish his, his column, and it was you know, during the heightened you know, tensions of the Syrian war. And so he writes a column calling for greater international efforts to end the civil war um, that was taking place in Syria. And one of the most iconic pictures, I don't know if you remember seeing this in the news, but this iconic picture of the little five-year-old boy in the back of an ambulance, they, they just dug him out of the rubble you can just see the, the shock on his face, the trauma on his face. He's covered in dust, right? His little legs, they, they can't even extend over the, off the, the, the chair onto the floor. He's just staring bewildered, shocked in this photo. And so the columnist publishes an article and says, we've got to do more. Like this is what is happening in Syria. It's horrible. We must do more. And he gets this torrent of angry comments about Syrian refugees and, and why should we be caring for them? And so he asks aloud the question, do we care more about our dogs than people? And the answer is absolutely yes. Yes, we do. Yes, we care more about our dogs than our people in so many ways. I mean, think about it. Like, I, and I love dogs. <laughs> I love my cat, too. Oh, and we have dog daycare spots. At the same time, there's a coldness to the poor. We have dog, you know, puppy salons. But there's a coldness to the powerless and toward many people of color and to immigrants. There's a coldness towards immigrants. There's a coldness to the unborn. Um, there's a coldness to children with Down syndrome. Did you know that 90% of all children diagnosed with Down syndrome are aborted, aborted in the womb? And yet, if you talk to a parent with a Down's child, they will tell you that this child has a life worth living. And, I, and I've lived it with them. And I can tell you, this is a life worth living. Like, almost every Down's parent says that. But we live in a world that says... Do we care more about our dogs than people? They estimate that over the last 20 years, 9 million girls 
have been aborted in India because of sex-selective abortion. Nine million. And it's primarily among the Hindu and the Muslim um, portions of that population. Because they didn't want a girl, they wanted a boy. Do we care more about our dogs than the meth addict? And the op- opioid addict? And, and like, that, that is, a, that is a, such a real, like, nobody who works in healthcare doesn't see um, the crippling effects. It's like a spirit that comes upon someone when they're stuck in, you know, o- opioid addiction. Now, I agree that we can't solve all the world's problems. We can't solve all the world's problems, but it doesn't follow that we shouldn't try to solve any. You know, God is intensely concerned for the weak, the orphan, the poor, the powerless, and Christians are going to be moved to help the needy and the poor if their faith is genuine. That's what James tells us. It's, it's just part of the call of Christians in this world to go out looking to go out looking for all the ways our society treats animals better than its humans. And to try, even if it's just in some small way, to try to make a difference. Now, I, I really, I so strongly believe in, in trying to take actions that just affirm human dignity. And so, I'm not trying to use myself as a good example of this, but I'll just tell you, like, I go to a homeless day shelter every few weeks here in South Scottsdale, and we, we try to provide them, you know, clean showers, and we try to you know, just sit next to them um, and just strike up a conversation and maybe, you know, put a hand on their shoulder and just say, you are a human being. You matter to me. You're beautiful. You're, you're made in the image of God. You matter to us. Well, this past Monday... Uh, the showers were full with volunteers, so I ended up going to the clothes closet and for, I don't know, two hours or so. I was just taking donated clothes and, and putting them on hangers, and, and I was feeling like, I'm not doing hardly anything here. <laughs> this is not glamorous work, but it is something. It's something, and I want you to do something. I, I strongly believe that every Christian has a call on their life to go out into the world and find those that are bent at a 90 degree angle and, and, and to at least lay your hands on them, speak words to them, you know, give them a cup of cold water, at least humanize them. And I also believe that purpose and joy are connected. I, we see this all the time, both the Christians and who are not, those who are not yet Christians, that when, when a human being is doing what they feel is their purpose, when they are fulfilling their purpose, always that's accompanied with this three-letter word, joy. And we really find joy when we're doing what, what we're purposed to do. And you know, I went for a long time, um, busy with my church up in Idaho, really not caring much for the poor and missing out on that joy. I don't want you to miss out on that joy. Joy and, and purpose are so connected. As the saying goes, in this world, the strong eat the weak. But God's strength is seen in our care of the weak. Only in Jesus Christ do we learn just how far God would go to identify with the poor and the oppressed. That he himself, the very God of very God, would become a poor human being. As we said last week, would become and take on the death of a slave. Poor human dying on the cross, a victim of human injustice. 
in order that there would be a day when injustice would be put to an end. I'll conclude with this. We want to be the kind of people, and we want to be the kind of church, that when, and maybe others in this community, they'd be like, I don't agree with them on everything, at every point of doctrine. I don't share all of their beliefs. But I shudder to think what the city would be like without them here. Like, that's what we need to aspire to in Christianity, in this cultural moment, is having churches where the rest of the world might say, I don't know about what this Jesus thing or this salvation thing, yeah, or whatever, but I sure am glad that they're here because they are, they're making a positive difference. There's so many ministries around where you can partner. We, we can sign you up and, and get you involved. We will take you to... Uh, Work with Barrio Nuevo in South Phoenix. We'll, we'll take you to the, the day shelter in, uh, in South Scottsdale. We'll take you to the Paiute Community Center and, and have you work with mentor kids. We will, um, I mean, there's, I know there, there's some of you work in the, the women's uh, sh- um, medical, no, that's not the right word. Uh, say again. Thank you. It, work with Hope Women's and some work with Feed My Starving Children, and some work, you know, Immigrant Hope is here, who Luis has done a lot of work, um, benefit from. And there's just so many ways that you can take a step um, to go out into this world and make a difference. In the name of Jesus, amen.